I'm trying. I'm trying. It's not like I'm not trying, Brohensky. I'm trying hard. Live from Beit Shemesh and broadcasted around the world, you are listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with your host, Nahum Kligman. Interviews and advice from Jewish entrepreneurs from around the world. Listen, learn, be Masliach. Welcome, fellow entrepreneurs, to a, another episode of the Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 61. This one is the longest episode I've ever recorded, and mostly because it's really two parts. I was going to split it up into two parts, but I said, you know what, you guys could pause it, listen to it at your leisure. But the first part is, was, is about Zalman Goldstein himself, his history, his publishing company, his business, uh, really fascinating, his history, really incredible stuff. But the second part is his brother has been in the news lately. His brother is Rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein, who is the Chabad rabbi of Poway in San Diego, who uh, was recently shot in an attack on the Chabad house. And uh, a really fascinating story. He went to meet the president with his brother. And I go through in all the details, you know, the people, you know, how, he, how the call came from, from the president. Remember, they had a 15-minute call. Uh, before they went to Washington, how they how they found out about going to Washington, when he was asked to speak, how it was meeting the president, his private conversations, really really fascinating behind the scenes look. So this is going to be a fantastic episode. It is a bit long, but enjoy it. Uh, but first, before we get started, just a word from our sponsor. You got a foot like a boss. Looking to make more money? Do you sell services or want to earn extra cash on the side? Book Like a Boss is the ultimate software to sell services and book appointments. You get your own custom webpage, which includes everything you need. Book Like a Boss integrates with your existing calendars, sends reminder emails, is fast, secure, simple to use, and looks great on mobile. Visit booklikeaboss.com and get started for free. Welcome to another awesome episode of the From Entrepreneur. I am super excited about our guest today, Zalman Goldstein. Uh, you may not have heard of him yet, but you probably have seen his works and you've definitely heard of his brother, uh, which we'll get to in this episode. Uh, it's really incredible. Some of you know that I do uh, uh, some consulting. Uh, I have like one or two uh, clients that I take a month and Zalman had, was a fan of this podcast. Now he gets to be on this podcast and he reached out to me, and we did some consulting together. And, um, you know, I'm very, very inspired by him and by his story and the work that he does in publishing and, uh, and other things. And uh, he actually was here. He was visiting me in Israel. Uh, uh, he was in Israel about a month ago or two months ago or so, and uh, I got to meet him in person, which was great. And then I wasn't really in touch with him until I got a picture that he sent over to me with him with the President of the United States of America, and I was like, and then all of a sudden, things just like, oh my gosh, Zalman Goldstein is brothers with Yisrael Goldstein, who uh, we now know, um, you know, is, is, is world famous now, or, you know, not for the best of reasons, but we're going to hear a little bit about that story, um, about what happened. Uh, you know, he's, the, he's the Rav the Chabad of Poway and in San Diego, and uh, so we'll hear all about that. But uh, I, I wanted to get Zalman on the show even before. Uh, his brother became famous, and so Zalman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So uh, Zalman, I 
you know, well, you know, thank God we've had you know, opportunities to talk in the past, and you know, I've been very impressed with your publishing. First of all, just to let people know, it's called the Jewish Learning Group. So if you go, and I'll put the links uh, in the in the page. But if you want to check out the website, it's JewishLearningGroup.com, and you publish everything from music to books. You've uh, uh, the Silly World of Helm is something that you reproduced. Uh, you know that business model that we've talked about in the past. About there's so much great, great Jewish content out there uh, that's sitting there and collecting dust that this next generation uh, is just missing out on, and you're repurposing it or taking it and re refreshing it, and uh, really incredible work. But first, before we go and dive into more about what you're doing, let's go a little bit into your history. Where did you grow up? Uh, where you're from, and uh, you know what led you to get into publishing and you're into music as well and a bunch of other things. I, mean, I remember the first time we, we spoke, you just kept blowing me away with more and more things you're involved in. Uh, pretty exciting story. So let's, uh, let's share it with everybody. So how, how, where, where are you from originally? Thank you, Nachum. Before I start, I just wanted to say I love everything you've done with this podcast and I love meeting you. I think everything you're doing for Call Yisrael is just amazing. The people you interview, the information you put out there, it's just really special and the uh, conversational style that you have and your, your heart comes across. So I'm just honored to be here and uh, thank you for giving that opportunity. Awesome. Thank you very much. I, I, I deeply appreciate that. My pleasure. So I grew up in Crown Heights, the youngest of 10, and uh, went through Lubavitcher Yeshiva on Ocean Parkway, followed by some uh, Yeshiva Shlichas out of town, um, starting go? in Australia, Sydney, Australia. Australia. Wow. In the 1989-ish. Oh, wait a minute. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Yeah, you just, jumped, you just jumped like 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Eretz Yisrael in 1986 in Yeshiva's Teres in Yerushalayim, on Rechav Yirmiyahu for a year and a half. That's a Chabad Yeshiva there. Followed by um, London, England, Yeshiva on Kingsley Way. Wow. That was followed by... A couple years in Australia, followed by 770 and Smicha, followed by marriage. Wow, wow, wow. So you really like, uh, have been all over the place. How long were you in Australia for? Um, I think it was about two years. Two years. They say, join Lubavitch and see the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and your, your, uh, your siblings are also, I mean, we'll get to Yisrael in a bit, but we know that he's in San Diego, but your siblings are also uh, in Anoslichus? Yeah. Yeah, most of my siblings are spread around the world. And um, my father, and our family was based in Brooklyn. My father was um, assistant principal at Beis Yaakov at Borough Park for like 40 years. Oh, wow. With Rabbi uh, Usher Enreich, about 2,000 students there. So we wow. grew up in a Chinuch-oriented family. Um, he was also the producer of Storytime with Uncle Yassi, the very first Jewish children's story tapes. Sarah, pick up that dime, and uh, or don't pick up that dime, <laughs> and uh, the big barrel of wine. And uh, he also ran a Jewish radio program called Silos Hashem on the Year for ten years between the eighty in the eighties, which I think there was like five hundred and ten episodes of one after the other every week Tuesday at six thirty on WHBI. Wow, um, I was actually I was actually a member of Silos Hashem back in the day. Oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> I just remember it was really cool. I remember we used to get these kits, and every, I don't know if it was every week or two, 
we get something in the mail and it was very exciting. You had your membership card and the more mitzvahs you did, the higher ranked you got. It was, it was actually pretty cool. Yeah, you remember the matzo ball contests with the prizes? You know, you clean for Pesach and your parents sign that you cleaned. You get the, some prizes, things like maybe, that. Maybe, maybe. I was very young. I mean, I, I, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 was, uh, but I remember, I remember being very proud walking around with my civil Sashem card. <laughs> yes, yeah. Wow, so your father, wow, 40 years of principal and uh, the first Jewish uh, stories. So is, his, uh, is his stories available today? Like, can you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I must just recently had them converted over to a format that could be used on audible.com. Audible is, um, was purchased recently by Amazon. They do audio books or books on tape. Right. So now you could stream them from your phone or stream them in your car or from your computers. And, um, um, yeah, all his stories are like 50 of them. That Amazing. are on Audible. They're broken into three books. It's called um, Uncle Yossi's Big Book of Stories, Volume One, Two, and Three. Amazing. And you know what's funny? And this is like this is a good segue into. I mean, we I, we'll talk about how you got into. I guess your. I mean, there's shlichus, but then there's also your business career. Uh, shlichus, I think it's understandable how you got into that. Uh, but um, in terms of business, you found a really, really awesome niche. And I, I don't know if it started with your father's project or something you're doing now, but you're taking incredible content that, you know, probably so many people have such incredible memories of, and you're making it available to now share uh, with their own children. So you just talked about how you took your father's stories, you know, from from the 70s or 80s, and now you're putting them on Audible, and uh, I think you, you also have it in book form? Yes, yes. We have three volumes printed in book form. Um, we published them, and uh, Phil Dime is helping distribute them, and they're on Amazon.com as well, as well as all our other materials. Amazing. I mean, uh, I'll, I mean just to uh, I'll, I'll tell the uh, audience that when you were here, you actually left me um, some copies of, uh, of some of the books, Jewish Living and, um, you know, the Helm book. Uh, the Silly World of Helm, which I grew up, you know, reading them in the Jewish press. Uh, you know, that was like the first thing I went to. And my wife, you know, she, she told me to tell she, she I told her I was going to be interviewing you. And she said, make sure he knows how much we appreciate that book and how she reads it to the kids every night and how much they love it. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, happy nachas from this because, you know, this is something I read as a kid. And now my own children are enjoying these stories. And if it wasn't for you, all these Helm stories would be sitting uh, still in the dust. And, yeah, and, and, and I just want to point out that, you know, hopefully the, the, um, our listeners will check it out, but you do, and uh, you do top quality stuff. These are not junk books. Like these are really beautiful. Every project that you've done, and I've seen, uh, you know, a lot of your, your books and stuff, everything's done this first class style, which, uh, you know, which is really amazing. So tell me, how, how'd you get into this? These pro did it start as a, as a project you know, how did you get into uh, the Jewish Learning Group? What was the first thing you uh, you published? And was the goal really to take, you know, existing content and, and sort of bring it bring it back for the, for the next generation? So that's a great question. So it started, really started mus from the music side of things. Um, at about 19, age 19, um, I started patching around on the keyboard. And... Um, noticed that I wanted to learn how to play music. And um, our family was always musical. My father played 
<clears throat> albeit without reading notes, just sitting at the piano and playing by ear. And my, some of my brothers played by ear. We had a piano in the living room that we all kind of uh, futzed around on. And um, it wasn't until I finished most of Yeshiva that um, the Yamaha started coming out, the little more sophisticated keyboards where you can make some beats and are able to even mimic some of the um, popular music at the time, like Avram Fried, Morchem and David, the Rabbi Sons, things like that. And that was fun for me. Um, and one summer in camp, I brought along with me a small computer. Well, it was big in that time. It was this huge CPU and a huge monitor, but it was small from compared to what the studios were using. Um, and this program called Master Tracks Pro, which lets you have 64 tracks on the screen, and then you connect your computer to it, and then you can build tracks starting with bass, then guitar, then keyboards, and then rhythm, and then add some strings and trumpets and things like that. And I just had a lot of fun recreating some of the tracks from, at the time it was Avram Fried's Adaraba tape. Um, and I realized that um, this is not just fun, I was good at it. And we had these, I had these karaoke tracks that the kids would come and the staff members would come and sing over and we used them for choir day on visiting day in camp. What camp was this? And the Gan Yisrael in Montreal, mm -hmm. Camp Gan Yisrael. And, and then from there, it just blossomed to where I said, wait a minute, I don't need to copy other tracks. I could start my own and do something from scratch once I figured out the methodology, how music was kind of built. And so I put out the first uh, Chabad Classics, Volume 1. Um, it was just a collection of favorite Chabad tunes or Chabad Classics, hence the name. And um, I sold it in to a, through a Derrit at the time. It was in cassette. And I remember Shlema Simcha at the time said to me, he was running a comp um, running um, as a rep with a company called Sinram in Toronto or Canada somewhere that was doing duplication. He says, you know, nowadays everything is also on CD-ROM, on audio CD. I think it would be very, very appropriate to also put this on audio CD. And so I produced not just the cassette, but also CD, and that kind of started the Chabad Classic series, which ended up being 250 tracks over 15 albums. Wow. Uh, over about a 10-year period or 15-year period. And uh, along the way, I had guest artists like Andy Statman, who's on Chabad Classics 2 and Chabad Classics 4, uh, Yoran Gershavsky, who did some overdubs on Chabad Classics 1, and then we did some solo albums together, like Totally Hasidic, Anigin is Forever, uh, My First Nigunim 1 and 2, um, and then Yisrael Lamb, I hired to help orchestrate, and once I had a body of music together, I had his help me take a lot of the arrangements and then create some new arrangements for a symphony. And we did this major symphony in 2002 in the Hammerstein Ballroom in Manhattan called the Chabad Centennial Symphony, wow. 60 piece orchestra playing uh, 250 years of Chabad uh, classical works. And there was just a, a, an awesome span between, you know, a chintzy keyboard in, the, in, the, in my room on top of the canteen in camp all the way to the <laughs> Hammerstein Ballroom. Wow. But it was a great ride, and uh, I wouldn't wow. say those first albums were very high quality, but they had a simplicity to them, and uh, I certainly wouldn't have released an album like that today. But I think right. everybody says that when they look back at their work. 
but I'm glad I did do them. So that was kind of my opening was through the music. And that's kind of uh, started my So interesting. Was that, was that a one-time event? Yes. Yeah, my friends say to me, News Alman, when you're doing the next centennial? And I said, the next, <laughs> the next, next hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was actually very mazeldic because that was right after September 11th and Broadway was dark and mm. the musicians were out of work and nobody was doing any productions at the time and the halls were empty. They were hungry for... Event for events. So you got a, you got a good price on the uh, on Hammerstein Ballroom from from the ballroom to the musicians to the camera crew that did live from Lincoln Center to the director Howard Heller who did an amazing job recording the event and doing a live cut of the event as the event went on, um, which we ended up using uh, making a DVD out of. In fact, it's on iTunes now. If you go on iTunes and go to Chab- type in Chabad music or Chabad Centennial, you'll get to see, um, I think it's a two-hour program or an hour and a half program of the whole of the whole symphony. It was just a great moment that had Alfred Fried over there. Wow. We had this uh, Russian group do a little takeout. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. So were there, was kind of, were go a ahead. People, a lot of people show up? Yeah, we had uh, a little over 2,000 people. Wow. With a line around the block of people waiting to get in, and we ended up having to write tickets by hand for standing room. <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> it, was, it was great. It was a lot of fun, and I should say that the the chutzpah to to pull off such a thing really started in uh, in Russia. Um, I was learning in seven seventy, and uh, one day Moshe Slunim from Ezer Sachim, which was a group in Karnaitz who used to help the Russian Jews behind the Iron Curtain. He came in, and this is 1992-ish. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, anybody interested in going to Russia, we're sending some Bachram over because just then it was um, the Iron Curtain began to fall, and there was more access to shuls and communities, and they wanted to send some Bachram to, to help teach Aleph Beis and uh, Moda'ani and basic beliefs of Yiddishkeit. And uh, I put my name on the list, and uh, I ended up going to being sent to Minsk which I spent about six months there. And while I was six here, six months. They sent a bucket to yeah. Minsk for six months. Yeah, they sent the. It was ten of us, and they split us into peers of two. And they said, "Here's two hundred bucks, a box of food, and good luck." <laughs> oh my gosh! How old were you then? I was twenty-one, twenty-two. Wow, somewhere in that range. And I must say, it was the best experience of my life. I mean, first of all, the the experience of being on your own and having that responsibility makes you grow up very quick. Sure. Not knowing the language forces you to learn the language. And also wow. not being in your comfortable bed in the comfortable clean home, but in the, in the back roads of Russia, the time it was very poor and very difficult. And it, uh, you grow up quick. At the same time, you realize the value that you're providing to the Yidin there. And it's very meaningful work. Um, but then you also learn some some chutzpah in if you're up to it into what you could pull off so right. you know the few dollars we had um i rented out the minsk circus which is this huge block long circus theater where they have these big shows uh three thousand people come in and they have uh, acrobats and beers and you know animals right. and i rented it out for hanukkah and then we hired this um steel worker to make a huge menorah 20 foot menorah and we put out 
the advertisements all over, free Jewish concert for, for Jews, a day of Jewish unity and pride. And the place was packed. Wow. Uh, and With Jews? With Jews. Well, <laughs> hopefully it was mostly Jews. <laughs> and uh, Avram Fried was doing a 10-city tour of Russia during that Hanukkah. And he stopped by that night and performed in Minsk. Wow. And when I saw how it's, by the way, the video of that, I just recently found and digitized and put it on YouTube. So you can find it if you type in Minsk or Minsk Hanukkah or Zalman. You know, I'll put, the, I'll put the video in the uh, show notes. Yeah. But when I, when I came home from that and I saw how relatively easy, at least for me, it was to pull off such an event, I said, you know, this is doable. You don't need a, a team, a whole company of people to do this. If you're tenacious and if you're organized and if you know what you're doing and you just go with some determination and smarts, you're able, the sky's the limit. So that's kind of how the Chabad Centennial Symphony came about. I said, let's try this in America. Wow. And so that was, that was that piece over there. Amazing. Amazing. So, tell us, talk, talk us through. So, when did you become more official? So, you did the, the oh, okay. Chabad so, I did the music, and then for a period of time, I was helping with the Chabad of Deerfield Beach in Florida. I was living in Florida for a bit, and I was looking to supplement our income. And I was thinking, what can we do that's practical for other people? That's not music. Um, my brother Aaron, our oldest, my oldest brother our oldest sibling, he runs Chabad of Ann Arbor, Michigan, on the University of Michigan campus for about 45 years or so. Wow. And he published, well, really photocopied a little yellow booklet called Shabbos Miros. Mm -hmm. It has a picture of Chalas on the cover, and inside is just basically photocopied out of the Siddur. Shalom Aleichem, Eishes Chayel, Kiddush, um, out of Tehillim, he cut out some nugunim like Yifrach uh, Biyamav of Rechel Karnei or, uh, you know, different songs that were known, at least in the Chabad circles. And then uh, some others, Miros, and then Benching, and he would use it Friday night at his table. And it was, it, it was, looked like a, it was wonderful, but it looked like a schlock job, just, you know, copy and paste, something you would uh, do in camp or in school. So I thought, how about if, I retypeset this and make it something official and pretty. <coughs> Excuse me, I was sure that Shluchim around the world will find it useful. Right. At the time, there was this uh, software program called Dugesh. Out of, I remember uh, Dugesh. In Israel. Yeah. And um, I, I sat down and I <laughs> painstakingly typed out whatever I could get from their clip text, and then I typed out the rest. Um, I put um, the same thing, you know, starting with Shalom Aleichem, <coughs> ben, uh, Kiddush, Benching, um, Shaloshudis, the, the, the Shabbos Day, Yom Tif, and then 150 songs, um, Hebrew songs with English, and the Kiddush was that it had English transliteration. You, so were you the first one to do that? I was the first one to do that for Chabad material, the Chabad Nusach. Uh, okay. And I published it as the Shabbos Table Companion. And I thought, you know, we'll sell a couple of thousand and that will be it. But it's now almost uh, 20 years and we've sold over 100,000 of them. Wow. As far as I know, it's um, from what I'm told from the distributors, it's um, the best-selling Jewish title in the past 15, 20 years in the Jewish world. Wow. Um, and I totally didn't expect that. I mean, it's still selling today. You go on Amazon, you type Shabbos Table Companion or go to our website and, and they keep sending me replenishment alert, replenishment alert. <laughs> I need to send more, send more. 
Wow. So that when I did that, I said, okay, what's next? I mean, a Yid is a Mahalach. We don't sit still. Right. Especially somebody who grew up in my home. The Goldsteins are always active. So <laughs> um, that was followed by a Shabbos synagogue companion where um, I took main prayers that are done in Shabbos davening and I transliterated them. So like L'chunaranana, L'chadeidi, Shiru Lashem, Shema Yisrael, Aleinu, Haidu, Baruch Shamar, Ashrei Yishtabach, things like that. Yeah. Transliterations. And then for the rest, I wrote little phrases about what the tefillah is about, where it's from, what it means. And the intention was it's a small companion that in the Chabad house, you give it to your mespalel to hold alongside his sitter. And it helps him learn Perish Amilos. It helps him learn the background of the tefillahs. Instead of sitting there and just looking at the walls or not feeling connected, they had something that drew them into the service. So um, that was called the Shabbat Synagogue Companion. Then I did the same thing for the Machzer, for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Wow. Then I did a... And this is like you would would physically typeset it yourself? Yeah, physically typeset it myself. I would um, work on the graphics for the cover. Um, At first, I started with Shalom Greenswag, for those who were in the music production, cover production back then, remember the name. And then Arya Friedman, who was his apprentice, who ended up going on his own. And then after a while, I picked up the trade myself and... Everything in the past 15 years I've done from the cover to the inside, all internally myself. Um, I ended up with a Photoshop and Illustrator, and I learned those different packages and um, basically did it all in-house, which helped keep the costs down. And then um, finding a printer who could keep a good quality was a little bit of a challenge until now we have the same printer for the past 10 years, which has been wonderful, reliable consistent and so now i have i think it's 16 different books um so there's the high holiday for the for the um, then there was a complete friday night sitter and then there is the a junior congregation companion which just has tefillos and big that are used for junior congregation then i did the complete haggadah which still sells really well even today um it was used at the white house staff seder for several years in a row. It's a, it's well, a under small, uh, Obama? Oh, under or various administrations. Because um, no matter who's in the main office, there are so many Jewish staffers. Sure. So our Passover Seder table companion was used at the White House staff when they sent us a picture of their table. It was so nice to, to see that, you know, little me, and here's the, <laughs> the, the, the God that goes, it's used in, in the, the White, White House, House and, and in other places, in Australia and in, in Perth and in Canada. And, in, uh, and there's one fellow every year who buys several hundred and gives them out with matzahs to friends as part of a, uh, campaign to raise awareness for the mitzvah of Pesach. Nice. So it, it's the first Chabad Nusach Haggadah that's translated and trans, transliterated page for page, and it has instructions. And it's not rich in commentary, but it's direct and to the point, which is what people like. And <laughs> I think that's what most people want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to make an Ashkenazi and a Swarty version now. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, uh, I did a Jewish wedding companion, which you give out to guests. I noticed lots of shluchim have uh, stapled papers together. What's a bedekins? What's a chuppah? And, you know, what's going, what's a ksuba? So I I did it in the same format, in a similar vein, retype set, 
um, fresh material for that you give out to your guests at the wedding. We did one for Bris Mila. And then finally, the Jewish Mourners Companion, which kind of caps the ends, the end of the life cycle, which goes through illness, sickness, uh, organ donation, uh, end of life issues, proxy, wow. health proxy, and then how to actually run a funeral, what goes on in a funeral, what to do during Shiva, Shloishim, Yartzeit. It has wow, a Meyer, wow, wow. It has a in there. Um, really, which, really, really the gamut of everything. Yeah, yeah, kind of covered the whole range. I had a funny story along the way. Um, I guess people didn't realize it's just uh, one person running this whole thing. I Wait got me, a phone call. One person, meaning you, did everything? Yeah. Yeah, I did the writing. I did the, the writing, the publishing, the design. The graphics, the design. I would hire out for proofreading and for editing. Right. Other than that, um, everything wow. else is done in myself. That's insane. But it was funny <laughs> because one day I got a phone call uh, from the Western Wall Heritage Foundation. Yeah. They said, we came across one of your Friday night guides and we were wondering, can you help us make a sitter for the Kaisel? Wow. And I said, well, there's so many other publishers who are capable. There's Art Scroll, there's Feldheim, there's Israel Bookshop and Mosaic Press. And said, yeah, we called all of them and, and we're not really getting anywhere, getting, got, not getting any concrete results. And I am... Um, I didn't want to spoil their enthusiasm and say, well, I'm just a guy with a computer. But I said, sure, uh, tell me more about it. <laughs> and he said, well, we have tens of thousands of Yidin that come by the Kaisal every Friday night. And they are a little bit removed from the Hebrew prayers and don't know what the service is all about. And we need something that we could put in front of them that has some English in it, has some instructions, has some directions, here we stand, here we sit, this is the meaning of this prayer, and we want to make a custom sitter called Siddur HaKotel, or the Kotel Siddur. Are you willing to do that for us? And I didn't even have to wait for him to finish the sentence. I said, of course. Of course, sure. Of course. I mean, it's, it'll be an honor <laughs> right. to, have, to have a sitter that the Kaisa and Mashiach comes, and the, the Yidin are gathered, and they have a sitter there, and that I had some part in that. And it, wow. it's just, of course. And so we worked in it together for about, I don't know, four or five months. And now there's uh, 20, 30,000 copies wow. of the Yorha Hotel that's wheeled out every Friday night on these uh, stands. And um, they're used by groups and by tours. Amazing. What a success. So, yeah. Wow. It's, uh, it's interesting where these things end up, end up leading. Wow. So that incredible. And it, I mean, again, you're just blowing me away with how much you're able to accomplish and what one person is able to do when they put their mind to it and the impact and effect you could have. Um, so tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, I love the idea the, uh, of taking content and, you know, a lot of it's okay. You did the Chabad stuff, but there was stuff, um, you know, we talked about before that, uh, you know, how, how did that come about? Like the sure, film, sure. film stories and... Sure. So after a while, you know, eventually you run out... I can't say you run out of things to write about, but you kind of run out of things to write about because I, <laughs> I already covered Shul. I already covered Pesach. I already covered the Chagim, the life right. cycles. You know, so then I wrote about kosher. I had a book called Going Kosher in 30 Days, which became a bestseller. We end up winning the Benjamin Franklin Award, which is a secular award given to... Um, 
books of excellence within each category, like religion or travel or sports or whatever it might be. We wow. were the first place winner within religion amongst thousands of other titles that came in. Amazing. They end up asked me to come down to California to receive the award at their seminar, uh, ceremony. Did so they have kosher after, food? They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I did, say, I did say, they asked me to give a few words, and I did say, uh, after receiving the reward, I said, award, I said, um, it was an honor to write this book, and it's a privilege to be recognized for putting it together and the way it was organized. And for all my brothers and sisters out there, Look at the title of the book, Going Kosher in 30 Days. Today is day number one. <laughs> and hopefully you know. Always a chabatster. Always a chabatster. <laughs> <laughs> so after I finished writing that, and then um, I started thinking, okay, where do I go next? So it dawned on me, my father, had a great body of work, mainly stories that he used to say, both from the Midrash, from the Talmud, um, that he would say on the radio or on his cassettes. Um, and I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if those were brought into the printed form? And I uh, spent some um, time getting those transcribed onto paper. Right. And then edited, and I put out three volumes of Uncle Yassi's big book of stories. They have about um, 60 stories, um, all the way from long sagas that happened to Jews many years ago to Mashal's Mashalim that came from the Gemara or from uh, Jewish lore to Hasidic stories. And uh, yeah, they did really, really well. Amazing. In fact, they did so well. I was glad to be able to fill up, you know, when you, when you start building a legacy of books or a library of books, so you have your serious books, you have your liturgical books, you have your instructional books, and they target different ages. So this helped fill up a, the, the need for a younger age for children. And then once I started doing that, I put out another book called My Favorite Jewish Stories, which was the best of Uncle Yossi's stories with full color imagery, which I hired a wonderful artist. His name is Joseph Maya. Mm -hmm. And he brought to life a lot of the stories that my father said, like the hour of fortune, the big barrel of wine, the great treasure or the great surprise, or the 10 wedding gifts, an amazing story with the times of the Balshemtov. And in fact, that book did so well, a Costco picked it up and it ran in Costco for oh my gosh. a couple of Hanukkah seasons. Um, as their uh, Judaic um, story um, gift type of book. Wow. Could, uh, that was a lot of fun. So um, tell me, because I want to get uh, to, to uh, talking a little bit about your brother and, and that incredible story. But just, uh, I'll be good. Yeah, so let me tell you how we get. So yeah, I've given you the long, long version. So when I finished with all of that, I said, okay, where do we go next? And one day I was walking to Shul and one of my children asked me, uh, have you heard about Chalm? And I said, of course I heard about Chalm. In fact, I grew up on Chalm stories, and Bobby used to um, lay on the couch after candle lighting and read me uh, from the Jewish press. The centerfold had the story, The Silly World yep. of Chalm by Arnold Fine. Yep. And I oh, said, uh, yeah, what do you want to know about Chalm? She said, well, do you know any stories? And I said, yeah, I know a couple. If I could scratch my memory, maybe I'll remember. <laughs> and I told her the one about the tzedakah box where the people kept stealing the tzedakah box, so the sage advised them to tie it up very high 
and use a ladder whenever people needed to put tzedakah. So they would take a ladder in the shul and climb put tzedakah. But then the ganef would climb the same ladder and take the same thing. So <laughs> it was like this typical chelm story. Right. Um, and then I said to myself, wait a second, where are all those stories? And, and why, aren't they, why haven't they been published in, in any compendium or put together like a, so I started to make some phone calls and I was able to reach out to the class family and uh, the members at Jewish Press and they invited me with open arms. Wow. So what did you do? You actually, I mean, how, what? It was very, it was a pain in the neck because <laughs> a lot of these were, we're talking 50 years of material. Wow. And a lot of these were in PD, not even in PDF or in text form. So I would say about a quarter was in um, OCRable text form. Yeah. But the rest were just, we had, I had to go down and physically take the um, archives down and, and take pictures of them and then convert them to PDF and then hire a team of Hevra to, to type them out or to OCR them and then fix it up. But it, it was very painstaking to do the whole, the whole, the whole thing. But um, at the end, oh, and there were so, so many duplicates too. Um, mm -hmm. So at the end, we ended up with about 150 Chelm stories, which uh, now is published under the silly world of Chelm. Amazing. Um, and, and I, and I got sold to the quality out. of the book, I mean, it, it sold out, you said? Yeah, it sold out twice. Wow. And now wow. we're in the third printing. Amazing! Such a great book. Such such. It's so perfect, you know, for nice, clean, funny, good stories to tell the kids. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Talk about, talk about. So and and then yeah. and then once I finished with Silly Where the Chalem, I was already at their offices. I said, you know, I remember Abikazun, the jokes that Arnold Fine used to put at the end of the paper in the back page on the bottom, right? Every week. Um, what do you guys think about me putting out Abigazun? He said, you're sure people will be interested? I said, I think so. Look, there's so much out there and for serious material, and there's, there, there isn't really a clean, kosher joke book for a film house or for any home, for that matter, that has clean and tasteful jokes that you don't feel um, concerned leaving out on the table. <laughs> right. And... Um, and he, they said, well, if you, if you want to dig through the archives and do it, because it's hate. And it was literally a mountain of text that I had to go through. Um, end up with like several thousand jokes that had, again, a bunch of duplicates and some which were appropriate in its time and not necessarily uh, made the cut to get into the book. But at the end, I think we ended up with like 400 books or so. 400 jokes. Uh, jokes. Wow. And I split them by cat. Uh, divided them by category and then split them across the two books. And one thing that I always felt from the first day I started doing anything was anything you do has to be with high, the highest caliber, highest quality. Yeah. And you could tell, good I mean, paper, I've seen this stuff. It's like good graphics, good typesetting, good typefaces, good letting everything. It has to I think be. I think I talk about that in my book. Uh, uh, you know, when thing says, if you're going to do something, do it right. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people they have good intentions, and they they want to do it right, and they they think they've done it right, but you know the text is too dense, or the title of the book has no connection to what's in the book, or the graphics on the book they they gave it to their teenager to do, or you know it, it's it's such a shud because it's lost opportunity. 
Right. It's a whole package. You do judge a book by its cover and, sure. and, and its title. And and you're presenting, I'm in, well, in my case, at least, presenting Yiddishkeit, um, when it comes to the more serious books, you want it to be respectful. You want sure. it to be dignified. Sure. And it also helps with the sales. You know, and it pays to invest a few extra dollars to, to get a good art and to, to, to buy a fund or to... Um, uh, invest in the quality. Paper, invest in the quality. You will never ever lose from it. Amazing, amazing. So what, like what's so what's next? What what's the exciting project are you working on now? Or if somebody wants to work with you, let's say someone has an idea, um, or they want to publish their own book, is that something that you do? You get involved in? So I have I have two tracks. So I'm still I have material. You know, every time I finish a project, I say, okay, I'm, that's basically it for now. Okay, it's a wrap, and then. Right something else comes up. So I just finished a very long project that took about a, a decade to do. It's called Jewish Living Simply Explained, where I, I digest um, a full topic, let's say Hashgacha Pratis, or um, the purpose of a Jew, or the age of the universe, or Torah mitzvahs, um, everything that is said about it, I distilled to one page. And I did it together with Rabbi Zelikson, who has an encyclopedic uh, understanding of Hasidus and Torah Hashkafa. And it was very hard to do because you could always, it's always easier to write a big book on something than it is to condense, to have just at the tip of a teaspoon so, well, everything you, you need Jewish to know. Living? This is called Jewish Living Simply Explained. Right. So yeah, that's out, it, that's out, that what? just Correct. So once I finished that, I said, okay, what's next? And now on, on the table is day to day Judaism basically what to do in the morning. This is for people new to observant Yiddishkeit. Right. Shulchan Aruch is wonderful. Got the, you know, various guides on Judaism is wonderful. But um, this intends to gather together just the basic core ideas every single day, what to do in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. The same for Shabbos. And then it goes around the year. Erev Rosh Hashanah, what is it that I need to be doing now? So you have, you know, the various menhagim, atars nedarim, or shopping lists, you know, apples, honey, a head of a fish. Practical, just bottom line, like a, shuch, a, a basic, of a basic, shed the basic of a shulchan aruch for day-to-day Yiddishkeit. Uh, goes through life cycles and also through the months of the year. And uh, Shabbos and Yom Tif. It's a difficult project, but... Um, that that's one track that I'm working on now. The other track is finding other content that's dormant. I mean, if you go sometimes into bookstores and you look at their um, old book sections, if they have one, there are some great English books from the 50s and 60s written by from rabbis that are owned by various publishing houses that are now defunct. Right. And uh, great material. And I look at them and I say, why, why is it just dead? It's a, you know, I, I, I really loathe the idea of a content cemetery where content is just laying there, not used. So the, yeah, there's another track I have of trying to repurpose material with permission, of course, sure. to give it a new life, to put it in the hands of the next generation. Maybe a slightly or very lightly rewritten, maybe new graphics, maybe a new format. Right. But, uh, I just so want to point out to, to the audience that, that this is like the, the genius in a niche, you know, finding something, finding a, a pain point, finding a need. Um, and, you know, don't say, hey, why didn't someone else do it? You know, just say, hey, I'll do it, you know. And um, I think it's, a, it's incredible to, uh, 
you know, to be able to bring, again, like we spoke about before, to bring these things that are, li- that are dormant and just, as you said, content graveyard and, you know, and bringing it back to, uh, you know, uh, bringing it back to life uh, quite literally. And a lot of times you're able to find great synergies because, for example, newspapers, they're busy with next week's issue. They don't have time to go and, and deal with the past. Right. You know, some, some are doing a wonderful job like um, Hamodia or others. They, they do put out books of their serials every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, like you would see a story that ran for, I don't know, 50 weeks, gets edited together and put in a book. That's fabulous, and, and I support that a lot. This, that's what needs to happen. But there's a lot that falls by the wayside, and there are a lot of newspapers or other content producers. We're talking like Mishpacha or Ami um, and others that, that pump out great material every week, especially around the Chagim. Right. And then, boom, it's just gone. You know, it gets thrown out or, or it falls behind the couch. And then it's lost. You know, who's going to go dig up one magazine to read something? But right. if you're able to capture a column from there and put it out, you know, f- uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a service to the Eilam, and it furthers the idea of just to bring more Kedusha, more Taira, more Taichan out there so that Yidin don't have to, especially teenagers and kids, don't have to start wandering amongst foreign passengers foreign pastures for entertainment <coughs> right. give them something good and those who are seeking Yiddishkeit also are looking for some guidance and we could put those out beautiful all right so we, have, we, do, we don't have that much time left but I do want to um, you recently met the president of the United States Donald J. Trump uh, I guess that was not something you were expecting uh, obviously it was not um, for good reasons, you know, so to speak, because of what happened to your brother. But why don't you walk us through from the time you first, how did you first hear about what happened to your brother and what was that next week like? <laughs> it's, uh, it was a whirlwind, that's for sure. Um, it happened to be this Pesach for the second days of Yontif. I was with my sister in L.A. Oh, and wow. the plan was, instead of going straight back to New York, where I live, I would stop off in Poway by my brother for a couple of days, Monday and Tuesday, for just, you know, hang out together as brothers and spend some time, maybe relax a little bit, and then I'll head back to New York. Mm-hmm. And little did I know. Um, Matzi Shabbos, uh, so first uh, Shabbos afternoon, um, a neighbor came in and said, um, he heard there was a shooting at uh, a Chabad house in San Diego, but no. little, little details known with there are you, several so that's houses. what you heard? Yeah. That's what you heard? Wow, that's so yeah. scary. Yeah. <coughs> so there are several Chabad houses in San Diego. We had no idea which ones. I said, nah, it's probably not Yisrael. He's, he's like a little lach somewhere in the edge of San Diego, 30 miles from San Diego, a Poway, a little hamlet. Nobody even knows he's there, and it's probably the bigger Chabad house, and hope everybody is well. And, you know, we went through the rest of Pesach, sitting on pins and needles. Sure. It was only a few hours, uh, because uh, we heard this around 3, and then Yantef ended like 7.30-ish, 8 maybe. Right. Um, and then right after Yantef, news started trickling out that it was, in fact, Yisrael's Chabad house. And so <sighs> I was supposed to drive to him the following morning instead I said, I'm not waiting for tomorrow morning. I just grabbed my stuff, shoved it all in the car, and I drove down. You drove by yourself? Drove by myself. 
went to the hospital where he was held at the time. Like, did you confirm it with anybody? You just heard it on the news and you said that? No, I confirmed. No, no. I, yeah, I confirmed. I spoke to, I think it was one of his sons. Okay. And my sister who spoke to his son. And uh -huh. I said, to just let them know I'm driving down there. And at the time, it was like um, a lot of mis lack of information. And when you have a vacuum, you have a lot of misinformation. Sure. So all kinds of wacky stories I was hearing. On, it's a two-hour drive, two-and-a-half-hour drive down from Los Angeles. So on the way, I was hearing all these wacky theories that um, Yisrael wrestled the gun out of the, the, the gunman's hand, and that's how he got his finger shot off. And another one that the congregant stood in front of him and took the bullets for him, which was also not true. Right. And, uh, oh, great. But we had, I had no idea what I'm driving into. But I said, my brother's in pain, and he's in, I heard he's in surgery. I'm going to be by his side. And so I arrived at the emergency room, and uh, they said, no, he's now... Uh, finishing surgery need to go to such and such floor and i went there and he was then by that time this was eleven thirty ish around he was in recovery room because he was in surgery from like 2 p.m onward so he was already finished that four or five hour surgery and was in recovery and they said he's awake it was four or five hours just on his on his uh, hands two hands right? yeah wow um and i went in there and i saw him and he was awake and we hugged, and he said he's so happy to see me, and I'm so happy to see him. And honestly, for both of us, the enormity of what happened that day hasn't settled yet on either of us. The fact that he's still alive, and the fact of the loss of Lori, and the fact that the Chabad house was violated in such a way was just sure. incredible. It still hasn't settled on, you know, it's, it's still like up there outside in the periphery and eventually we have to make uh, terms, take, get to terms with all of it. But anyhow, um, I made Avdallah, um, we had Avdallah there and then um, we were talking and kind of from the conversation came out that we can't just stay here in the hospital and, and just be victims. What do you mean you made Avdallah? Um, oh, because your Avdallah oh, didn't hear Avdallah yet. Yeah. And I and yeah, and I just said Baruch Hamavdo min Kedush Lachol. Ah, and ran out of my the house. car and ran out the house. Ah, wow. And then um, we were talking. And I said, you know, tomorrow morning we should really be at the Chabad house and open it at ten o'clock and say we're back open for business. Nothing is going to keep us closed, keep us down. And um, then at the time, the media started calling, and Yisrael was in no condition to speak to them. And under sedation, and even though he was awake and talking, you, you need to be a, have presence of mind. You have to need to be coherent, sure. and uh, somebody needed to step in and be the point person for media, for the police, the detectives, for Chabad itself, for the family who's mourning the loss of their mother and wife. Sure. So I I just said it's providential because these things come naturally to me. So I. I took over at that point and uh, fielded the phone calls from different producers, uh, from CNN, the MSNBC, to the Chabad headquarters. How does, when that happened, like, how do they get your number? Like, how? It's okay. it's it's <laughs> through the ether. <laughs> no, I mean, the, some of them called the Chabad line or called my brother's cell, and I had it. I had a cell, and I said, "Here, just here's my number." Um, and so it happened kind of organically. Uh -huh. And um, 
and we said we decided tomorrow morning we, we got the doctors to agree to do a, a discharge um, not just against doctor's orders but they felt it would be okay you know he was in the hospital for hours he's sufficient with the antibiotics and and the surgery was just on the extremities of him like right. my hands it would be okay if he goes out in the morning they, of course they would love him to stay a f- few more hours but they supported a 10 o'clock 11 o'clock uh, arrival at the Chabad. And this is what? This is Monday? This is Sunday morning. This is Sunday morning. Or, wow. And so, meanwhile, the mayor came to the, the I'm sorry, the sheriff came to the, the, the chief sheriff came to the hospital to visit Israel, and some other dignitaries started coming. Um, and then we started, uh, I started diverting everyone to the Chabad. I was saying, we're being discharged and we'll take care of that in any interviews. Uh, at, after, at the the press, after the Chabad House, after the press press conference. And the intention of the press conference was, we are um, here, we are not going to cower, um, we are back open for business, this is the Chabad way, this is the Jewish way, and um, Israel was on board with that. And I'm, I must say, he gets such schar and credit for standing up to yeah, to, he was so strong. Moment, I remember watching the, it. Know. I remember watching the press conference, and he was so on fire, so on point, and yeah. so inspirational. It was uh, yeah. incredible to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's like I said, Yisrael, don't worry. I, I got your back. I'll take. I'll handle the scheduling. I'll I'll help you with the messaging. I set up a framework for him. I set up the foundation upon which he built an incredible building, um, and just came a point where I didn't even have to give him um, talking points anymore. I say, Israel, you're doing just, you, you digested it, you got it, you have, you have it. Just run with what, what your gut is telling you. And uh, after that conference, um, media conference or press conference in front of Chabad House, we went to his home, which is about two, three minutes uh, away. Right. And then one after the other, the networks were coming by, setting up, takes them about a half hour to set up their cameras and lighting and then they would have Yisrael sit for an interview and that's where he really put his kishkis into the message and and it, it kept him in a very healthy positive frame of mind and frankly helped keep America in a healthy po- positive frame of mind sure. you know, at one point over the course of the days I mean right now it's all a blur Sunday bled into Monday, into Tuesday, into Wednesday. It was It's still a blur for me, and I have to sit down and write it all out to try to recapture some of the moments. Right. But um, one of the things uh, along the day, uh, as the days went on, there was um, High Lifeline reached out from Los Angeles, or the lead, or from New York, I don't remember where the call came from, um, and said, you know, we're here to support um, the, the community, if necessary, we could send a team down for grief counseling, uh, PTSD, and all of that. And um, and I, and I helped make that happen within the show for the members and for Lori's family. But while I was on the phone to one of their professionals, I said, "Tell me, is it healthy and okay for Yisrael to be saying this story over and over and over again, or is he re-traumatizing himself every time he gives another interview?" Wow. And the expert said, "On the contrary." those who clam up and don't speak 
have the longest term damage and the longest term trauma from it. The fact that he's speaking it and saying it over and over and over again is extremely beneficial long term wow. for him. It's almost like 40 therapy sessions, you know, type of thing. Right. Um, and, and so, so when did, what happened with the, um, then, then there was a story, I don't know if it happened Monday or Tuesday, the president called, uh, called him, supposed to be a couple of minutes and ended up being like a 15 minute conversation. Yeah. How did that yeah, whole, so I think, at, I think it was Tuesday. We were in the middle of doing an interview with ABC news. Um, Israel was sitting on the couch talking to the anchor and my phone started ringing on, on silent. It was vibrating with a call from Washington with a 202 area code. So there were lots of reporters calling from there. So I just let it go to voicemail. And then I went off to the site to listen to the voicemail so as not to disturb the set. And I hear, hi, this is the White House operator. We're trying to connect a call from the president. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you made the president go to voicemail? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, um, and then, then, you know, please call us back so we could schedule the call. So they actually left a phone number that you called back? Yes, yes. So you called back so this number. I, How I, I know I, it's I first, first, I, I stopped yeah. the, the interview. I said, guys, hold on a minute. It's the White House. Um, and then I called back the number and, and I said, hi, I'm sitting with Rabbi Goldstein and we're, he's available to speak to, with the president. And the operator said, okay, stand by. And then put the president on. Wow, and just like that. Just like that. And it was like, okay, here's the president. Your brother was like, what did you say to your brother? I mean, like, I said, the president is calling. He said, seriously, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not Yankee. You know, we have yeah, a, right. a, a nephew who's, <laughs> who does great impersonations and makes everybody <laughs> laugh. Uh -huh. So I said, um, you know, just take the call. And we put it on speakerphone. And um, he was the president was just gracious and just a real mensch. And it, it wasn't just a drive-by phone call where, you know, I feel bad for you. I'm so sorry. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you for your call. Uh, you know, God bless America. It wasn't that conversation at all. It started that way. Right. But uh, it, it went into a real meaningful conversation about values in America, about uh, moment of silence, about how, families need to reconnect with their children and know what they're doing and, and have a dialogue about the value of human life and how dangerous hate could be. And you, your brother um, wasn't nervous? I mean, did he? He, he, was, he was admirable. I mean, throughout all of this, I mean, he drew on a real inner hero. strength, real inner strength that, that can only be said is, uh, you know, uh, that came from somewhere deep within him or maybe far above him. But he... He, his voice didn't quiver and he wasn't nervous in any way. I think it was all just so real, surreal, where you just, you're, 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 you, you don't even have time to say, I need to be nervous now because I'm speaking to the president. <laughs> right. You know, from the moment those shots rang out at him from 10 feet away, four shots, boom, 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 boom. And he's still alive. I mean, from that moment. And then from the moment when he came back into the show after the shooter ran away and, and, heard the eerie silence in the show because really everybody was outside huddling and hiding, but right. he thought he's coming back to everybody dead in the show. Wow. And so just think about that from, from those couple of experiences, just that I mean, already took him out of this world uh, from the moments of reality. So therefore he hasn't landed yet. 
So speaking to the president or even speaking before, you know, the American public from the Rose Garden when the president asked him to speak. So the, how, did that, how did that come about? That was, two, that was two days later on Thursday. Yeah. So I want to finish the point that yeah. he didn't qu- qu- quiver or, or feel nervous because he's just, he transcended all of it. But anyhow, the conversation with the president was really warm and nice and that finished. And then that night we started hearing from various aides from the White House or was, I think, from local San Diego government official that is close with Chabad that there's National Day of Prayer that Thursday and there's a chance that the rabbi would be invited to attend. So that's that's all the information we got. It wasn't like right away, okay, you guys are going. Right. And then Wednesday, we got I got an email asking for um, the rabbi's name and date of birth and my own name and, and his son for just in case the, uh, the he gets invited to National Day of Prayer. Um, and and just so you know, Yisrael was in no, no position to travel. I mean, he was still in pain. He was right. so, such a hero doing all these interviews. Right. And both of us barely slept. I mean, not that I, that what went on for me is even <laughs> comparable, uh, right? incomparable with Yisrael, but we both, we have like a deficit of 70 hours of sleep that week. Wow. But, be it as it may, he, he sat for interviews and, and he says, you know, I'm really not in a position to travel anywhere, but if it's going to help spread the word and get the message of and the positive and get the Rebbe's message of a moment of silence and putting back values into Americans' children, America's children, I'm going to do that and I'm going to go. So I sent the info and I said, Rabbi's up to doing it. And uh, we later... Wednesday, we got a confirmation that it's on and that we should book tickets. It was almost impossible to get tickets so late in the afternoon for the next day flight. But um, I reached out to Delta, um, who's vice president of media or community relations, got back to us right away and offered to give us passage on their aircraft. Wow. And um, they were very gracious about it. Wow. And um, we quickly packed, and um, we flew up there. The people um, recognize the people recognize your brother on the plane. Yeah, yeah. Um, we flew up there Wednesday afternoon. Um, he he every he said. So you so Delta they they got you uh, they got you flights they got you two tickets, right? Three and tickets. oh, three tickets for your for your nephew also, correct? Yeah. And so did the people recognize your brother through the airport, on the plane? Yes, from the, from the moment we got out of the car at the curb to check in, people were coming up to him. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This shouldn't happen in America. Wow. I'm Jewish. You have my support. Um, I must tell you, Nachum, in general, I, I was so moved. It just it reminded me what kind of unique, special person my brother Yisrael is, that Everybody within the Kapawe community expresses so much love toward him. I mean, you know, usually you have a rub of a shul, you know, people kind of, okay, he's the rabbi. I don't know. Some of them like him. Some of them don't. Some tolerate him. And, you know, he has his own life. But here, Yisrael has this way of connecting with people that is very genuine and very warm, that builds a very strong kesher shel kayama, a very strong attachment that when, when at the um, press conference on Sunday, when the mayor of Poway, who followed Yisrael after his remarks, said, Rabbi, 
um, I love you, we love you, Pawe loves you. Mm. And, and I saw it coming out of his eyes, the, 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 the love and the admiration that Pasha made me cry that, you know, he could have said that we feel so bad and it's terrible, hate shouldn't happen in our city. But he said, these are my only remarks. These are my remarks. I love you. We love you. Poway loves you. And, and I just saw that repeatedly from um, Israeli uh, expats who, who, who live now in, in Poway, who come to Shul, how they, they hug Israel and they, they spend time together. They care about each other. To the old Russian fellow who's been living there for many years and recently started reconnecting to his Yiddishkeit. To families, uh, large families, small families, Persians, Americans, California. You know, it was just so special for me to see how people connect with him and, and truly love and care about him. Wow. And it, it's, it's, a, it's just an indication of how much he put out into the community. Wow. I remember a few weeks ago, before any of this happened, I just call him randomly. He's my brother, you know, hello, how are you, Yisrael, and what's doing? He said, I just got back from the hospital visiting a family. And I said, you still do that? You know, you've been uh, 30, 40 years on Shlichel, you're still, you're still doing hospital visits? He says, what do you mean? I love it. Wow. Somebody's in the hospital, I, I'm there for them. This is my, my tough kid. This is me. This is who I am. It's very and real. It's, like, it's very real for your brother. Yeah. And it's just very special. It, it, I, I, as you know, brothers, we know each other really well. And we know our Milas and Hasranis. But, you know, for Yisrael, it's just an area. I, I'm just in awe in his menschlichkeit, his heart. He's just a huge teddy bear. You could see. You could see it. I mean, you know, just from the, you know, the interviews and you see him, you could tell he's very warm, very special, very special yeah, he's, person. He's genuine. You know, he's not... Very real. He's not for his own covet, right. which is why people connect to him so easily. It's, it's not about him. It's about the message, about the shlichus. It's about... Yes, yeah, so, so people were recognizing him on this uh, walking to the gate. Um, some people said, Rabbi, I'm lighting candles this weekend for you in honor of Lori. Oh. And, um, it's really nice. I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, his impact on, was real and the message resonated. So he, so there was a, what was about a five hour flight from, you flew from San Diego to Washington, DC. So unfortunately Delta didn't have direct from Diego to DC. So we had to stop in Salt Lake city. Oh, wow. Which was stunning, by the way, arriving at Salt Lake City with all the snow-capped mountains and everything. Um, so we had like an hour layover there. Okay. And then from there on to Washington, D.C. And even in the airport, you Yisrael did an interview. Two of them. Oh, really? <laughs> one, one was... <laughs> in the air, well, in airport, in, the airport. In, in, in Utah? Salt Lake City, yeah. One was with a traveling um, Fox 5 camera crew that and a producer that came along for the trip and another oh, from really? San Diego and another one was on the phone uh, from Eretz Yisrael and then there is a Jewish uh, from I guess a telephone news network um Vasser, I think it's called oh Komvasser yeah sure um, and then, then he needed to pre-record a video for uh, evening of his Cyrus and inspiration that was being done somewhere in California that that night. Uh, they were gathering a thousand yidden together. So he, we, we, we kept trying to shoot. I was shooting on my iPhone from uh, from in in the lounge waiting for the 
boarding to start and we keep getting interrupted by the announcements you know with passenger <laughs> shapiro please come and we had to so we had to find a, a small quiet place and, and finally got a 30 second video in but yeah it was a busy flight um in general though it was a a busy travel itinerary but we were arrived in washington about 11 30 at night and this is what wednesday night wednesday night okay and we went to uh where did you stay? Up in a, uh, By Jared's house? Jared and uh, Ivanka? Of course. You? Yeah, they gave us their... their <laughs> they no, gave you the guest stayed, room? The guest room, right. <laughs> we stayed at the the Hilton near the Chabad house. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a Chabad house in Washington. Of course. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> so we stayed at that Hilton. And then in the morning, so we, we probably wound up the evening like 1, 2 in the morning. And then 6.30, we were in the lobby for... The seven o'clock shachers at the Chabad house there. Wow! Did your and brother know he was going to be speaking, or you did no, you just participate? We, we, we knew that we we're coming as invite in in invitees or just as as guests of President and Mrs. Trump mm-hmm. for the National Day of Prayer as part of the group of clergy that are invited to to be in the audience. This event, yeah. Um. So shachers was. Uh, kind of a thin crowd over there, just some of the, the staffers who work in the different lobbying uh, companies and maybe with uh, the tr- U.S. Treasury and uh, um, etc. I assume was, your brother was recognized there as well. Yes, 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 yes. And he benched Gaimel over there for whatever transpired on Shabbos. Wow. And then I ran into some some celebrity news reporters there, like a Turks was there from Ami, which is always <laughs> fun to be with him. Jake. And Shlemy Zayans from the guy who travels around to Saturday. Oh, uh, yeah. I just read, he just read incredible story. Yeah, he, he's, he's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. He popped up there for Shachris. It was fun to meet him. Oh, that's funny. And then, you know, a couple of. Um, I just read what? I just read like a couple stories. Uh, I think from the Pesach issue of Ami, where he yes, he, was in the, he, he just went to these crazy places and uh, just uh, amazing, amazing. And then um, from there, we had breakfast at the Chabad house, where a couple of um, Balabatim that were local to Washington came by and wished Israel well. Mm-hmm. And then from there, was off to off to the security uh, clearing area near the White House. They, they gave us a rendezvous address where we were supposed to go at a certain time in the morning. And we arrived there, and um, there was a White House aide who came out to get our group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go through several layers of security, kind of like going to an airport. Right. A little bit more classy than that, but a little more intense as well. Right. And not, not too intrusive. It was just... Um, <laughs> unfortunate in today's day and age you got to do this and then um, once we came in they showed us uh, out onto the rose garden which is right outside the oval office and they had a rows of chairs set up and the, the media was in the back and then there was a stage in front for where the president would speak from mm-hmm. and all these different dignitaries were mulling around over there and um, big machers from different agencies and other clergy from other faiths with massive followings, like, you know, 10 million followers. And wow. Like that. And coming over and 
sharing their blessings or condolence or asking to take a selfie or wow really asking to take a selfie yeah 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 <laughs> wow and um at some point <laughs> it, it was very hot outside that day and then at some point um one of the aides from the white house came out the a jewish fellow who said um it looks like the president will um be seeing you privately for a few minutes before the he comes out to give his uh, address to the National Day of, Day of Prayer. Wow! And uh, we'll just be ready, and then. Um, so you're basically sure you're out. You're out in the Rose Garden. Some an aide comes out and tells you this. Yeah. And then what happens? And then a few minutes later, he comes back and he says, "Okay, follow me." Okay. And. <laughs> So me, Yisrael, and Mendy follow him through this labyrinth of hallways. And it, contrary to what I thought, you know, that the White House is a hub of frantic activity. It was very, very serene, uh, serene and high class and elegant and proper and very fitting. Like and, a Trump property. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it was just very august and very nice, um, respectable. Mm -hmm. and, um, came inside. As we're being led towards the Oval Office, uh, Vice President Pence was there in a, a whole in, in the outside room of that, and uh, he stopped. We stopped, and he spoke with the rabbi a little bit. Um, what a nice, genuine person. Yeah. Uh, he was there with his wife, and um, they we chatted for a few minutes and. Uh, he shared his support and his condolences, and uh, it was just a very special moment. And then wow. um, a few minutes after that, I, I don't remember exactly, it's kind of hazy, but sure. I think what happened was President Trump arrived from his residence or from wherever he was, passing towards the Oval Office, and he sees the rabbi, and he comes over to us. And Yisrael offers him his hand, bandaged hand, to shake. <laughs> <laughs> and they start talking, and President Trump uh, connects with him. And, and like I told you before, Yisrael has this genuineness about him, mm -hmm. um, lack of agenda, lack of fakeness. You know, there's no sheker. Right. So Trump connected with that, and he says, you know, I, I, I like this. I like you. You know, <laughs> I like the way we're talking. Um, huh. you, there's something real about your words. And he even mentioned the way... The way you've spoken and connected with the people is very special. Come inside the Oval Office, and three of us went into the Oval Office, and um, we spent—I don't know—about it felt like ten, fifteen minutes in there. Uh, wow! Just having a very nice person-to-person -person conversation. Um, very. Who was in the room? It was the president. Was, let me try to remember. It was. Yisrael, his son, myself, the president, the vice president, um, a photographer from the White House, and a couple of aides off to the side. And so um, you're just sitting and schmoozing with the president yeah, and the vice president? We were standing the whole time around uh -huh. the Oval Office desk. Right. Um, the president kept offering, offering Yisrael to sit, but really? Yisrael was just uh, remained standing and, and engaging him in conversation. 
we spoke about the, where we grew up, and Yisrael mentioned uh, Brooklyn, and he said, we're in Brooklyn. He said, Corn Heights, we're in Corn Heights, Empire Boulevard. Oh, so we're practically neighbors, you know. <laughs> um, it was just very, very... The president, how was the president behind the scenes? A mensch, just a, a sweet, fun, easygoing person. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that was our experience, and and it's so unfair the way he's portrayed so negatively by so many. Sure. Around that, my my takeaway from the meeting was both from the phone call a couple of days before, and actually meeting him in the Oval Office was uh, he's um, un, unjustly persecuted, and not not dissimilar from the Jewish people, you know, <laughs> it's always persecuted for sometimes no good reason at all. Right, and, just, uh, and he will persevere, just like the Jewish people persevere. Wow! But uh, a real man. She there was good eye contact. There was warmth in his words. There was camaraderie. Uh, it wasn't wooden. It wasn't still. It wasn't a show. It was. It wasn't. wasn't a it wasn't a press op. It was. No, it was just it being was real. Genuine. Just... It was genuine, and I could tell what genuine is because I, I see it in Yisrael. And and then I I know the lack of it in people who don't have it and right. I the two of them really hit it off, um, if you can use such words I don't know if, uh, <laughs> for the president but the, right. they got along they spoke a very similar um, language. Wow! Um, and so what happened? So went so long. It wasn't just a hit and run. It was. Right, so everybody was waiting in the rose garden and and you guys yeah, were uh, holding up. Everyone's in the. <laughs> and they didn't pass around uh, paper towels or anything, so everyone's soaking wet. <laughs> Wow. And probably grinding their teeth. What are they doing in there so long? Right. But, uh, so yeah, after about 15 minutes, they it they felt like, I, I, don't, I, I don't know exactly how long it was. It, it, was a, it was a decent chunk of time. It wasn't just a hit and run. Right. And then on the way out, the president um, remained behind in the Oval Office to review, um, I guess, his remarks or whatever was happening. And then as we were going through the hallways back towards the way we went in, um, Ivanka was there. Oh, wow. And uh, she said, Rabbi, can I escort you out? Oh. So we went out together, which was a very nice gesture <coughs> on her part, and we all went back to our seats. She's, um, I know that she is, and, and Jared, I remember on election night, they went to the Rebbe's Kever for tefillah. Yeah. Yeah, and they have some sort of connection with Chabad or appreciation, yes. or I'm not sure exactly what it is, but yes, those who know how things work in the world usually mm-hmm. make their way to the Ayel of the Rebbe and have a connection with Chabad. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty impressive. So then, so at this point, you st- your brother still didn't know that he was going to be speaking. That's right. He was be called up. Oh, wait a minute. No, um, it's coming back now. Um, at some point. In the meeting with President Trump in the Oval Office, the president said, I like the way you speak. I think I'm going to have you say a few words out there. Uh-huh. <laughs> which, uh, at which point your brother goes, oh, sure, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, at which point I think the word came up of what to say, and, and Trump said, just speak from the heart. You don't need a script. You know, just speak from the heart. And I, I totally agree. Wow, because he spoke beautifully. Yeah. Really I mean, beautifully. He, Yeah. And that was so, all off the cuff. After everything he's been through, this is now Thursday. The, the, the Well, the, I wouldn't say, I think of the four days before that is Hazara. Like we started with talking points on the notes app in my iPhone that we used uh, uh-huh. to, to, to have some um, 
focus points, you know, like uh, and positive and all the Rebbe's messages and moment of silence and values and the fact that it's not a religious nakuda, it's not about God and Bible and prayer, it's about the constitution, the rights that all humans are equal and we need to treat each other with respect. And, you know, those talking points. And, and the first couple of days, it was, it, it was necessary because, you know, he's in pain and how much sure. can you focus? But after saying it 40 times to, to various media outlets and, and, and really connecting with it and, and, bringing it out it, at that point he didn't need any any script i said yisrael you don't need any any talking points anymore just no was right just say what say what's from your heart trust yourself trust your heart so okay so what happened after the event ended so the event didn't end yet so we're sitting there and vice president comes out and introduces the day and then um some other uh, small parts of the program took place and then the president comes out and gives his remarks and then mentions Poway and the rabbi and then says this wasn't planned but uh, I want the rabbi to say a few words and Yisrael goes up and then shares what you all heard right. and then thanks the president for his and for his time and his cure and Yisrael said a very poignant thing he said I was sitting there on the couch weeping and your call began my healing. Right, I remember that. And that um, really connected. President Trump seemed to be visibly pleased to hear that. Right. And uh, after the president went in and everything finished, we went inside to cool cool off a little in the air conditioning. You went, into, then, the, you went, you went into the White House to get some air conditioning? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, let me rephrase that. We were, we were invited back inside to uh, uh, sit in one of the, uh, I think it was the Roosevelt room. I don't remember the names of the different rooms. Wow. Um, um, to to just cool, help the rabbi cool down uh, from the heat. It was really hot outside and everybody sure. was sweating. Drink some water and, you know, just cool down a bit. And then there was... Uh, couple of reporters that wanted to speak to us and uh, oh the rabbi met passing through was dr ben carson oh wow some warm words with with us and then we went outside and yisrael gave a short statement to the media right outside in the portico where the president usually on his way out to places stops and speaks right they asked him a couple of questions and then we went we walked past the main front of the white house outside the gate took some pictures, and then headed back to the Chabad house in Washington to have lunch and then sit with for another interview with a, a, another TV network and then um, uh, deal with getting back to California. And by the way, on the way back to California, we both stopped in JFK and stopped at the Oil of the Rebbe to... Oh. to um, give an update and then ask for a bracha and to leave on the names of the families and to uh, say some tehillim. Um, and then Yisrael went off to California and I went back to Muncie. Oh, wow. So you, uh -huh. so you, uh, you knew you were going to be staying in the East Coast at that point. Yeah. And, and then that Friday, I got an email from the White House saying uh, how incredible, how incredibly wide the message of Yisrael went that day and then there was a 
a media aggregator, mm-hmm. otherwise called the media aggravator, but <laughs> they, they gather like stats of how many people saw or how many people were reached. And it, it showed that there were 44 million people who heard Yisrael's message from the White House lawn that day. Wow. And, uh, wow. Yeah. And that was an international, international number. Wow. And nationally was about 60% of that or about half of that, about 22 million people. <sighs> That's, I mean, I still can't wrap my brain about that and, uh, to be able to fathom what it means to reach so many people. Um, Amazing. Bring out such a message of positivity before the world. Okay. So what's, what's next in this story? I mean, I know this can take some time to heal. Um, <clears throat> is there the story is just starting. Or? Really, the story is the story is just starting. Um, you, you should um, uh, we should spend a minute or two about Shabbos and Poway. I, mean, I, I wish I could have been there, but I I was needed back home with my family. Right. The community, um, the community Shabbos was just unbelievable. Um, I had some siblings there that flew in from Australia. Some came from California, from New York, and they shared that there were about 300 to 400 people in Shul. Wow. Just under 100. And Yisrael said he recognized barely 70% of them, you know, like, in other words, 70% or 80% he didn't recognize, fresh faces. And some people drove from far away just to spend Shabbos in Norway to show support. And they had a Hadlakas Neris right up until Shkia on Friday, Hundreds of lights, hundreds of women oh. candles, and then they had the Chabad Bachim there putting on tefillin with people, right up until candle lighting time. Hundreds of tefillin, and then uh, he said Myrif was a combination of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and some Chastera all together. <sighs> they had some beautiful uh, Bachim Chazanim, the Rabin brothers who came and were Masamech the Elam. And they were singing, L'chadaydi went on for such a long time. And the, the women were dancing on their side. The men were dancing on their side. Wow. It was like a real spirit of, of Am Yisrael Chai the whole Friday night. And then they had this huge Kiddush with uh, everybody arm in arm singing through Kiddush and, and through the meal. Um, and Rabbi Simon Jacobson flew in from New York, who's a, a noted lecturer, and um, shared some words of comfort with the Ilam, and, and, and he was available to bring with them. Um, and then Shabbos Day was a repeat, and then at the exact time when the shooting started, everybody in Shul stood up, and Yisrael opened their Kaidesh and, and, and cried out to Hashem that this should be the last carbon that's necessary before the Geula, and that Shema Keleinu, Hashem Malekinu, and wow. Shema Yisrael, everybody called out together loud, Shema Yisrael. And it was, it was just a very moving, cathartic, uplifting Shabbos for everybody. Wow. Um, so, and then, yeah, the question is, where do we all go from here? Yeah, so, what's, uh, uh, I mean, Yisrael, obviously. Is, Yisrael needs to heal. Uh, his community needs to heal. Sure. Uh, he's going to be uh, landing at some point from, from this whole surreal sure. auto outer bodily, you know, experience. Right. Um, But we were both fascinated how we're we're pumping out the message and then the world is actually responding. 
You know, it's one thing to put out a message of positivity and a call for Torah mitzvahs. It's quite another when the world actually listens right. and connects with Israel's sincerity and wants to do something different. And not just Jews, but also non-Jews sure. want to do something better, something different, something more wholesome. So, you know, it's almost like Yisrael, <clears throat> they talk about how we are all a varim of the Ebishter, we're all limbs of Hashem Kivyachl, mm-hmm. and that when a limb is in pain, Hashem fills the pain, and when a limb is healthy, it helps the other limbs. When a limb is sick, it draw, pulls down on the other limbs. Right. So it's almost like the, the Shluchim network and all the rabbis and all the Yidin around the world, we're all part of one body, one structure. So, you know, Yisrael could be calling out a, a direction, but everybody else is actuating it with their actions. They're, you know, the, the, the mind says go and the, the foot moves and the arm lifts up. Right. So we, through Yisrael's call, all of these rabbanim and rabbis and leaders around the world and, and even regular folks are stepping up and doing something, either by starting new mitzvahs or increasing... Has there been talk about a new or specific project, something that's more everlasting or more organized? Yes, yes, yes. There are various threads that can be taken from this. Some of them are the moment of silence idea or um, quiet moment of quiet reflection. What is Um, that? That is in schools, they used to have a moment of silence for people to pray. Um, yeah, I'm not totally uh, up on the history of it, but apparently there was prayer in the schools, in the public schools, right? Last century, I think there used and, to be prayer, and then they said, "Okay, we can't have prayer, but we'll give them a, a minute for people to be able to connect." And that was taken away. Is that and what it seems? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if that actually ever was legislated or not, but at some point. Um, there was a call, a renewal for that from the in the times of Ronald Reagan from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, and it just always was something that wasn't uh, undertaken or, or didn't make its. Um, I'm looking for the right word for it, but traction didn't right. you know gain traction, and um, it, the Rebbe <clears throat> always felt that when the values of society are bolstered then the actions of society are more lofty and more humanistic, more healthy, more mm-hmm. in touch with the heart versus the hatred and, and the rest. So um, the more we can reach children and have them think about we're humans, we are all created in God's image, right. we have to uh, live for something that's higher than just ourselves. Um, hopefully they don't go grabbing a gun and start killing. Right. Um, I mean, it's not, as simple and binary as that, but it, it starts the conversation. You know, when a kid sure. comes home and says, mom and dad, there's a moment of silence. What is it that we believe in? Hopefully the parents have the presence of mind to start a conversation about. You know what? Sadly, sadly, the way we see things going on, how things are going on today in the world, it's, uh, it's not, uh, you know, I, I don't see it happening. You know, it's just too much. Um, too much crazy change and too much worry and too much people are so sensitive about everything, you know? Yeah. Well, look, hope springs eternal. And uh, we, we have, we have a, a statement from our Chachamim that light eventually vanquishes darkness. And we see that as a truth borne out in our own history. 
um, from the Chashmenayim to, to the Bnei Israel coming out of Mitzrayim to rising from the ashes of the Holocaust. I mean, look at the end of the day, those who are forces of dark are no longer here. Right. Um, albeit, you know, you keep having mushrooms or growths of different forms of darkness in every generation, but light eventually does vanquish darkness. And we hope that the American people at some point and the whole world at some point realizes that when you come for the Jews, at the end of the day, you, this, those same people will come for you too. You know, right. once you start crossing the boundaries of who's human, who's not human, who's worthy to be protected, who's not, eventually and that, that it becomes like a sickness. It's like a cancer that ends up consuming anybody who's decent within that environment. Right. Like that famous person who wrote the first, they came for the gypsies and I wasn't a gypsies. I didn't speak out. Then they came for the um, communists and I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews. I wasn't a communist. I didn't speak out. And it goes through a whole list. And yeah. They came for, came me. for me. There's, There's nobody no left, left right. to speak out. So we are kind of like uh, easier targets for some God ordained reason. Um, and then, it's really we are the barometer once it's like those little uh, stickers they put on perishable package when it turns pink you know that it was out of the freezer too long you know right. when the jews start taking on hate from others um it's not too long after where society will unfortunately start suffering more as well from those same perpetrators right. so it's worth it for everybody to get up and say no to hate no to evil, no to a lack of education. And the truth is, um, this whole idea, this run from spirituality is really detrimental. Everyone thinks, those who support it think it's a run towards uh, personal choice, a run towards freedom, quote unquote. But really, our whole country was founded on spirituality on spiritual right. basis. Our leading um, forefathers uh, of of America were religious people. It's true. And to try to... He, they said even uh, Hebrew was uh, supposed to be one of the... They, there was a movement to make Hebrew the official language of America at one point. Yeah, and it's, it's intri intrinsic in, in a lot of the symbolism within America. You have all the dollar bill, you have the eye that watches, and you have sure. the problems unum, and you have even... In some of the early colleges, you have Urim Vetumim in some of them. And, right. Uh, you know, so... Right, the Harvard logo, I think, has uh, something on yeah. there. Yeah, it, it wasn't something to be ashamed of. It was something to take pride in, that we are humans with a, a higher calling. We're not just humans as in, in an animalistic sense of just another form of an, an intelligent animal. Right. But we are infused with a soul and with a neshama. And when you have connection with that soul, you realize, wait a minute, there's something bigger than just my wants, my desires, my comfort. In fact, being connected to a more spiritual or a higher source leads one to lead a more comfortable life. Um, yep. Trying to wrest away spirituality from the American story is is not going to end in a good place. Right. We already we already begin seeing uh, uh, themes of that coming sure. up now. Salman, listen, this has been absolutely amazing. It's incredible to hear your story, to hear about your work. I think I'm going to have to break this episode up into two episodes. Um, but uh, really fascinating. It's uh, incredible to learn so much about your family, about your father, about your history, about your brother, 
uh, really covered a lot of incredible things in this. So I want to thank you for, for being on this podcast and sharing your time with us. Obviously, complete refuah lema, you know, to your brother and to the others that were injured. And, um, you know, I look forward to your next projects. And obviously, we're going to still be in touch. And uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. And keep doing what you're doing. You're uh, a light of joy and happiness. And you're helping lots of Yidin and others with Parnasa, which is a tremendous chus. And so you should continue and you should have success in your own Parnasa and health in your own family. And you should be besimcha and be able to serve Hashem with true joy. Amen. Thank you so much. All the best. Thank you for listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with Nahum Kligman. We hope you learned something valuable and will share this with your friends. For show notes, archives of previous episodes, and more information to help you start and grow your business, please visit our website, www.fromentrepreneur.com. Listen, learn, be Masliach.